what would it take for you to have the discipline to build a life, especially a work life that you love? What would you have to give up? What would you have to take on? Who would you have to be in order to live that life fully? Hello, welcome to Time to Come Alive. My name is Valerie Hope and I'm your host. This is a weekly opportunity that I love to take advantage of because it gives me an opportunity to be more conscious and also help you all become more conscious, more connected with yourself and with other people, as well as creative. And this weekly conversation usually takes place with a special guest. And today's no exception. I have a wonderful guest I'm going to introduce you in just a moment. In the meantime, though, if you are not already subscribed, go to www.timetocomealive.com. That way you get every single episode in your inbox if you missed this live stream. And you can also subscribe on the YouTube channel just to make sure that you get a notification anytime a new episode is posted. You do not want to miss them. Now, today I have a fantastic guest with me, Frank Smith. Frank and I go way back. It's been like, I think we determined almost three years, Frank, because we met at the University of California, Berkeley's Executive Coaching Institute several years ago. And at the time, Frank, I do have to say that, yeah, your, your, your Berkeley, Frank, is a lot different than our, <laughs> our Frank today. Um, although I remember seeing a glimpse when we had to do some performance <laughs> there were some performances that we had to do it, you know, to continue to express ourselves fully in front of an audience. And you had quite a, you had quite a range. I hadn't realized you had a range of expression, but more than anything, I so value your perspective. You know, you and I have been friends ever since. And I, you know, tap into your wisdom every once in a while for things that are going on. Everything from dating. I think we talked about my dating life at the time to, this pivot that I, you know, the pivot that I made into business and, and then obviously over the last few years, all the projects and things that we've been working through. Um, and you've, you know, you've also shared with me a few things. So thank you so much for being a guest on time to come alive, Frank. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what else should we know about you, Mr. Frank Smith, the most innocuous name? You That's have. right. Yeah. 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 There's uh, Google me. You'll find me right off the bat. Uh, so uh, Oklahoma City is uh, where I call home now. I actually grew up in Dallas where you're at, uh, but uh, got married and moved here 32 years ago. So I've been in Oklahoma since then. Uh, had several businesses along the way, everything from manufacturing to retail uh, businesses to professional services, leadership development, and now I have Mosaic Personnel, and uh, we're a recruiting firm uh, that also works on uh, not only acquisition, but retention and transition for employees, and so really get to help people find a job that makes sense to them, help our clients find the right people uh, to come work for them uh, and just get to work in the business culture area all the time. Uh, I'm married, uh, as I mentioned, uh, 32 years to Heidi. I've got three kids, 27, 23, and 20, and uh, just enjoy all the aspects of that. And so uh, in my spare time, I used to get to do a little bit of car racing, which is kind of a theme that you'll always hear me talk about. Uh, but uh, haven't gotten to do as much of that as I wanted to since my kids decided they needed to go to college. Uh, so Our kids. I know it. <laughs> so uh, eventually when my daughter gets out of grad school, hopefully I'll be able to uh, do a little bit more racing than I get to do now. But love to travel, uh, love new experiences and seeing different cultures and different places. And that's kind of me in a nutshell. Wow. Well, there's nothing for us to talk about now. You said it all. Well, there we go. Concise. Thanks all for joining us today. <laughs> oh, very cool. All right. So first of all, Frank, let's, so clearly, I think the, the, the racing is probably the one thing that people are like, huh? Okay. That's different. So talk to us about what is it about car racing? Why did you take that up as a hobby or what was it about it that yeah, you know, I, I think kind of like 
every you know teenage boy is excited about getting his driver's license but i think i caught it right at the right time because uh, espn was uh just kind of hitting the market when i was a kid you know cable tv was new and uh they started having these in-car cameras and so it really kind of captured more of the essence of car racing than just watching cars go around a track like you had seen before uh and it just really captured my imagination and uh kind of just grew passionate about it. And uh, my wife was patient enough with me after we got married that she let me race go-karts competitively. And so these are the kind of go-karts that will go 65, 70 miles an hour. Uh, the class up from me actually did about 90 to 100 miles an hour. So these aren't your typical, you know, rent uh, go-karts down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and so I uh, raced those and then had kids and so I got rid of all my equipment uh, but then I still had this passion and so my wife let me go and I uh, get my car racing license and I actually raced uh, at lower levels nothing professional uh, car racing uh, with guys that were actually moving on so several of the guys that I raced with uh, in Michigan and California uh, have moved on and became professional car racers oh, wow. and so it's been fun to watch their career uh, but I realized kind of in that process that I didn't want to be a professional car racer because you actually spend most of your time uh, looking for a name to stick on the side of the car uh, and uh, only about five or ten percent of your time actually driving and so uh, as a, I just took it on as a hobby and even now I can't race enough to keep my racing license uh, active uh, but I'll go and work with an instructor just on a private track day and uh, use their car so I just show up and hop in a car and the instructor works with me and so just try to keep my skills up to date here and there. Well okay so so you started off by talking about how espn you know would i guess or other racing channels would just show people going around the track and something about the cameras being inside made a difference so i i, I don't see that <laughs> so what 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 is it about that new perspective that made you even more interested in racing like what do you see that maybe the average non-car car racing person notices yeah, I think it's just part of how my brain works. You know, my wife's an interior designer, and so she walks into a room and sees color balance and light balance and all that kind of stuff. Honestly, when I'm driving on the road and I see a turn coming up, I'm looking at that turn and I can picture the right angle to come through that turn at the maximum velocity. Uh, uh, yeah, sometimes I do that. It's a uh, round of city police. Just pay attention to yeah, what, is there, what make and model, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's frowned upon by your local police to take a 90 degree turn at 50 miles an hour, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, so it's just my brain just kind of sees it and, and runs with it. And so even when I go car racing, uh, it, it's just a feel I have. I mean, I can kind of feel what the car needs to do and what my reaction needs to be in order to keep the car balanced and running through the turn. And so uh, it's just kind of the way my brain works. So I think when I see that in-car video, I see something very different than you uh, see, just like different things you're interested in, you, you see different than I do. So I think it's just kind of how I'm wired, but it just captures my imagination and I can just see it and I understand, oh, here's what he's got to do. And, you know, you, I can watch a car race and see the guy that's, you know, it's like, oh, he's going to get passed in three laps because on current corner five, he's missing the apex by, you know, two feet. And I know the guy behind him's catching him and he's going to pass him. And so I can just see all that kind of stuff uh, different than a lot of people do. That's your brain, Frank? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of scary stuff up here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite impressed. I have no idea what you're talking about, but that sounds pretty amazing that you can catch all of that in watching other people drive. And then, of course, your own experience, too. Um, so how you've had to obviously put that to the side, but I can hear as you're talking about it, how excited you are about it, how fascinating. So how do you scratch that itch now? Uh, right now, I'm actually, yeah, I, I'll try to go and, you know, drive with an instructor when I can or where I, when I can afford it. Uh, the economy during the pandemic doesn't quite allow that. Uh, but there's actually a place down in Dallas or outside of Dallas that races go-karts and it's an arrive and drive and they're 60 mile an hour go-karts. And so mm -hmm. I'm actually hoping to go down there next month for their league race and uh, race against some of the local guys and see. So, you know, just 
try to find different places like that uh, where I can go and at least experience kind of life on the edge. And uh, it's just fun to try to take a, a car or a go-kart and maximize what it can do. And I think part of what I like about it too is it's your single focus. You know, so much of the time when we're doing anything, you got different thoughts bouncing around in your brain. Uh, when I'm on the track, nothing i'm not thinking about work i'm not thinking about something that my kids need uh i'm thinking about how do i stay alive in this race car uh doing as much uh as i can with it and so i like the fact that it just closes everything else out and it's just me and the race car trying to get the maximum performance out of it how do you stay alive in this race car that would occupy <laughs> my, my thoughts too that, yeah you know I, I think what's interesting about it is the fact that there's, like you said, there's this, I hear this dedication to it, this dedication to like solving the problem or not even solving the problem, but accomplishing the challenge, right? Figuring out ways. But here's something I'm curious about. Are you, have you had that experience that I've heard other guys have when you go to a stoplight and there's another car that pulls up next to you and there's like a little engine revving moment. <laughs> Is that a thing for you? Yeah, it's a thing. So, uh, you know, back when I was in high school, you know, I didn't have a car that could do much. And so it was never anything I could actually, you know, act on. Uh, five years ago, I actually bought a Tesla and uh, it's got more acceleration from zero to 40, zero to 50 than almost any car that's out on the market. Uh, and so uh, i would say that I've probably gotten to experience that a few times. You know, you, somebody pulls up and sees you're in a Tesla and it's kind of new, they want to see what it can do. So, you know, I feel somewhat obligated to show them, you know, <laughs> what new technology can do. Obligated. Okay, so that, I, I, there's, there are people that are probably listening, watching that identify with what you're saying and others that do not. I'm in the I do not category because that right. doesn't happen with me, but I want to understand this even better. I'm not sure why <laughs> I'm so fascinated by it right now, but okay, so what's the moment? How do you know that they want to test that and how do you how do you engage? Like what's the, what's the etiquette? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just part of it is you can usually tell, you know, just by kind of what they're doing and what their stance is, you know, usually because they've got a gas powered engine, there's usually some engine revving or, you know, kind of something where they're trying to show you of, Hey, I think I can take you. Uh, and you know, so you just kind of know it. I, I would have to admit that there's times when I probably misinterpret their, uh, <laughs> and I'll take off and go. And, uh, they're just like, just, and it's like, Oh, I guess they didn't want to, but I had a good time. <laughs> Okay, so then that when the stars align and they did extend a challenge of some sort by the rev, and so what happens then? Yeah, I mean, nothing really. I mean, I, I know in my Tesla, I'm going to beat them from zero to 40. I mean, there's really, unless they're in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, they really don't have a chance from zero to 40. After 40, they can probably take me, but, you know, from a, Honestly, I, I'm not a big into speeding on the on the highways or the roads. Uh, so getting from zero to 40 as fast as you can is kind of fun. And then you just back off because, you know, it just gets dangerous if you keep going at it from that standpoint. So it's more of just, uh, you know, off the line. Hey, let me show you what I got. And uh, then we just both move on about our day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, is there a wave? Is there a nod? Is there a lie? Any acknowledgement after that? Yeah, usually not. Yeah. yeah. Just, just part ways. Just yeah, you just part ways and you both had fun and, and move move on move on about. Yeah, just yeah, checking just them a little bit. Yeah. I think that's I, I think that's I've heard people say this and I think it's fascinating. I'm not really sure why I would never consider doing that. Well, I mean, I'm in a Honda CRV, so there's really no yeah. <laughs> kind of that in there. Okay. <laughs> so so now, so you've mentioned your family a few times now, right? So you have children, you have, you have three kids, married 32 years. So what, how does this all, how does Frank's mind work <laughs> in relation to life and your family? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the car racing kind of ties in, I think with everything of, you know, my brain has always been excited about business and, uh, so was very excited to go into business after I decided I didn't want to 
be a professional car racer. And so, uh, but it all ties together because my wife, as I mentioned, was nice enough to give me that opportunity to chase my dream and mm -hmm. to go see if I wanted to be a professional car racer. And I was able to determine that I didn't want to do that. So even as I've gone into business for myself, uh, I've been willing to push myself in order to try to create business culture that's very different than other places and kind of go against the norm. Uh, as I've raised my kids, you know, I've got a son right now that's playing professional golf and, uh, he's got to chase his dream. And so to provide that opportunity to help him chase his dream and my oldest son's an interior designer. Uh, and a lot of people told him, you know, Oh, well, what's your backup plan when you can't get a job doing interior design. And, you know, so far he's been out of college for four years and he's uh, been able to find work because he's really good at what he does. And that's what he's designed and built to do. And so I think with my family, it's just really been a journey of trying to figure out what are these kids, you know, built for what's their gifting and what are their talents and how do I help them, uh, go find work in those areas so that they can be in a position where they just draw energy from their work versus going and just having energy sucked out of them. So I think that's just kind of the constant theme of, uh, you know, I try to live my life with no regrets of if there's something that I really want to do, I try to figure out how to make it happen. And I do the same thing for the people that are around me and let them have these experiences that lead them down different paths that, hopefully they have a unique life that's different than just, uh, you know, what so many people I think unfortunately endure of, uh, you know, stuck in a rut kind of thing and, and work's not as rewarding as it needs to be for them. Mm. How fortunate, right, to have parents who will support you, not only support, but also sounds like you actively search for or help them identify ways to chase their dreams. You know, you haven't experienced it yourself. So I'm curious about where does that desire come from? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I would say it's probably comes from uh, that I didn't get that from my parents too much. Uh, my dad actually took me to college and signed me up as a chemistry pre-med major uh, because he wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> and I didn't want to be a doctor. Uh, you know, I, I was smart enough I could get through the classes. Uh, but I don't really love being around sick people. That's just not a passion of mine like it is. My brother's a cardiologist and, you know, he loves that. And that's just so fun to watch him do that. It wasn't a passion or a push of mine, but it was something my dad just said, hey, this is what you're going to do because you can always find work, you know, as a doctor. And uh, so he pushed that really hard. And when I changed my major to accounting, uh, he literally didn't talk to me for a year and a half after that because he was so mad uh, that I wasn't going to become a doctor. But a long story, it kind of goes back to he came out of the military, his dad had died and left a business running. And he stepped in to help run that business for his mom who was having to try to figure that out. And he told her, hey, I'll, I'll stay here until I get the company out of debt. And it took him 20 years to get the company out of debt. And by then he was in his mid forties, had three kids and he was stuck. And so he literally worked until he got me out of college. I'm the youngest of three kids. And then he closed the business down and went and did what he had wanted to go do, which was mission work. Uh, and uh, went and did mission work over in Russia and Germany until his health got so bad that he needed to come back and be closer to uh, medical care. Uh, but, you know, so anyway, I saw him go through his entire life, not really liking his work. Uh, he tried to cram me in a job that I didn't want to be in. And so I think all of those experiences just kind of shifted me into the mindset of, hey, I'm going to help my kids find what they're good at and what they need to go do versus what I think they should go do. Uh, and I've really kind of done the same thing for me. You know, I left a uh, well-paying kind of prestigious job at a large accounting firm uh, after only a year. And my parents told me, well, that's the stupidest thing you could do. And I thought it was the smartest thing I could do. I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy the culture. Uh, it wasn't the right place for me. And I needed to move on and go find something else. And so it was the exact right decision to make. But my parents were just of a different mindset of, you know, 
work is a duty and a responsibility and it's not something that you should go do and find your passion. And so I think I've just kind of rebelled against that mindset uh, in a way and kind of pushed myself into a, a nonconformist uh, business approach and then kind of pushed my kids to, Hey, you know, where, where do I see you light up and what do I see you get excited about? And, uh, you know, for my son that's playing professional golf, that's just his brain works with golf like mine does with racing. I mean, he can watch somebody swing a golf club and say, well, they take it away like Hunter Mahan and their follow through is kind of like Trevor Immelman. And I'm like, all I see is a golf swing. And uh, he sees these fine little details. And so it's like, okay, that's what you need to do. You need to work in that arena. I mean, you're, your brain works in that way. And so let's push you in that direction versus saying, well, you need to go get a job in finance or something like that. So anyway, long-winded answer to uh, kind of why my brain works that way, but just life experiences, watching my dad not uh, really get to do what he wanted to do for his entire career uh, and trying to do it different. Mm. So in that time that your father was really committed that you go into medicine, what, what, what did he see in that field that he didn't see in accounting or in, in other interests? I honestly think it was just job security. Uh, you know, he, he never enjoyed business ownership and the roller coaster that goes with, you know, the economy's up this year and it's down next year and crazy stuff happens. He just viewed it as, hey, if you're a doctor, there's always sick people there's just going to be this steady stream. And so he was looking for something that took those ups and downs out and had my best interest in his mind at heart. So it wasn't that he was, you know, a terrible person because he was trying to make me be a doctor. He honestly thought that would be a great life. And uh, it would be if that's what you really had a passion and a desire to do. Uh, but I like business and the roller coaster is crazy. And, you know, you get hit with a pandemic and it's just brutal uh, on what that does, but I'd still sign up for it again. Uh, Cause it's what I'm kind of wired to do. So. Wow. You know, bless our parents, right? <laughs> yeah. Cause it sounds like really it was about, it was about certainty. He was, it was really committed to having security, safety, right. Economic yep. safety and certainty for you. And, and yeah he was yeah. looking for me all the things he never felt like yeah. he had yeah so yeah oh parents <laughs> like you know, I gotta say, I've, I've been fortunate because you know as you were talking about helping your your children fulfill their dreams right to help give an opportunity to chase it both of my parents i would say were models of that it wasn't that they were they never pushed my brothers or i to go do any particular career or field or activity Every once in a while, I'd be like, have you thought about, <laughs> you know, the only thing my dad did push me into going to was college. Cause I remember after high school, I was like, well, all my kids, all my friends are going to the junior college. I just want to go there like for a year yeah, yeah. to the basics <laughs> and nothing against junior college. But he was like, no, no, you're going to go to four-year school. And I'm like, but I mean, it's more money. I mean, none of my arguments, none of my logic <laughs> won him over. So I ended up going to four-year school and okay, dad, you were right. Thank you. <laughs> it was yeah. helpful. And not only because of the experience, but I, I think I really found my tribe and found my stride. So there's something, you know, our parents do know some things that yeah. maybe we don't know or we don't see. And, and so I, yeah, but I can see also that when they become so, so focused and that and it sounds like with your dad, it was really what he wanted was not necessary. The way in which he guided you or, or, you know, tried to, I don't want to say push, but, you know, just work, was really committed to you taking on his particular path um, yeah. was coming from a place that maybe he hadn't even identified. So, but I want to go back. You said that there was a whole year that you guys didn't talk to each other when you decided to go into accounting, like what, so what happened all that time? What was, what was life like with your dad during that time? Yeah, you know, we, we had had kind of a rocky relationship uh, most of my life anyway, just because he was that person that, you know, you did it his way and there was no conversation. There was no listening to your kid and or anything like that. So, I mean, part of it didn't really surprise me that much uh, that, you know, he was going to make that decision. And that was made it really hard for me to make that decision because I knew what was coming uh, if I said I wasn't going to be a doctor and I was going to go into accounting. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was just kind of his makeup of, you know, and he would say it, it's my way or the highway. 
And so, uh, you're like, I kind of like the highway. I can go faster. You know, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, there was honestly a little bit of a relief just because the, the relationship was so difficult anyway, it was probably easier not to have that relationship. Uh, at the same time as a, you know, at the time I would have been what, 19 years old. Uh, that's pretty tough to have your parents kind of, you know, turn their back on you. Uh, and so, you know, that leads you down a certain road of, you know, probably keeps you from having as much, uh, self-confidence and different things like that along the way too. So it all wraps up into one big package of who you are and what you've got to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Not having that support sometimes. Yeah. does cause yeah. us to second guess ourselves. So after that year and a half of not speaking to each other, what changed, what shifted? Uh, you know, honestly, you know, while we can get into a long conversation there uh, during that time, I met my wife, Heidi and, uh, he wasn't super excited about my choice there. And so he showed up at my college graduation and basically then said, you know, Hey, if you continue this relationship, uh, I can't have anything to do with you. And so we went another 14 years without having uh, any sort of a relationship. And then 14 years later, he kind of softened and had a change of heart and, uh, came and had Christmas with us one year and then we were able to have uh, as good a relationship as was possible for the next you know probably I don't know at that point maybe 15 years before he passed away uh, so yeah just you know he, he was really stubborn and finally softened you know it seems like a lot of older people uh, kind of lose their filter uh, when they get older he actually gained a filter uh, when he got older uh, and made having a relationship possible and so it was really kind of interesting to see. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to my wife for uh, being willing to have him into our home for Christmas uh, after 14 years. I mean, he'd never met his grandkids uh, at that point. And so, you know, missed out on a lot. And I think he regretted that. Uh, so anyway, people change. And it was nice that we were able to uh, finish as well as possible before he passed away. Mm. Wow, what? That's an amazing story, really. And I mean, it does, it does go to show, A, that yes, there's a transformation, clearly that was present, and, and the fact that you still had an opportunity to re remedy, right, all the things that were broken. I'm curious about what it was like for you. Like, I, I'm, I'm imagining that there are people listening and watching this right now that may have a similar experience or maybe on, on, they might be your father, they might be you, right? But yeah. <laughs> what, what was it like for you in that 14 year span? And then when it finally shifted, what was that like? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of different feelings, obviously early on, a lot of hurts and uh, probably the best advice uh, that I've ever received uh, from anybody was don't be bitter. Mm. and don't let that get a hold of you. And so my wife and I really worked hard to say, hey, you know, there's no relationship now, but 14 years later when uh, the phone call came and it was like, hey, we thought we might come for Christmas. It was like, whoa, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it was because we didn't allow ourselves to get bitter. Uh, so, you know, that I think was the key to making that work. So there was still something to work with when that phone call came 14 years later. Uh, in the meantime, I think it actually, it grew my faith. You know, as a kid, you grow up and your parents are always kind of that safety net. Even if you don't have a great relationship, you know, they're still kind of there and they take care of the big stuff. You know that if something big goes wrong, uh, you know, they're going to step in and, and help out. Uh, but when you lose that, you know, kind of relationship with your parents, you know, I always talk about it. It's like, I, I felt like I was working without a net. And mm -hmm. so we didn't really have that security that, Hey, somebody can step in if things go really crazy. And, uh, you, you grow your faith in God a lot because he has to become that net. And so it's, it's a normal part of the maturing process, I think for people in their faith. Uh, but I think it was accelerated for me, uh, just because all of a sudden it was just gone. And uh, so I was kind of, like I said, I always use the term operating without a net, kind of like a trapeze artist or whatever. I mean, it's one thing to see a, a, a death-defying act take place when there's a net that if they fall, they're going to get caught in. 
uh, there's another thing when there's no net there. And so, you know, God had to become my net, which I think really helped build my strength and who I am and my faith and uh, all the parts of that that interact in the way I run a business and everything else. Mm. Wow. Operating without a net. And, and obviously you've had to make some choices, right? In understanding that you didn't necessarily have a net, there were some things that you had to do in order to, you know, like you said, your faith grew, but what are some of the experiences, just share some of the experiences that you had in operating without a net? Like what happened? What was maybe a fulfilling experience in which not having a net was okay? And where was one where you, oh, I wish I'd had a net. Like share something there. Yeah, that's a, hmm, let's see. I mean, the, probably the thing that comes to mind most is kind of my journey through work. Yeah. Uh, my first few jobs that I got, uh, were not what I expected, uh, mainly because of the culture that was present in the workplaces. And I really struggled finding people that would, you know, I, I would go to people, the mentors and people that I would try to find through my church and different places and try to have this conversation uh, of, hey, this, you know, this doesn't feel like the right place for me. And uh, the advice I got would be really some of the worst advice that I got was, you know, hey, your expectations are too high. You just need to stay put and put up with what they're doing. And I thought, I still think that's terrible advice. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of those things where not having a dad that I could connect with and have those conversations, you know, always made me feel like, you know, hey, I got to go, you know, I'm on my own trying to make these decisions. And everybody seems to be telling me that what I'm doing by leaving these companies is a bad idea. But in my head and my heart, I knew it was the right idea uh, to leave and that there had to be something better out there. And so, you know, that journey led me to going to work for a manufacturing company. Uh, the owner passed away unexpectedly and I led the management team to buy that company and then had the opportunity to run that business for 20 years and build the culture that I had wished I had in those early early days. And so, you know, good comes from bad things a lot of times. And so having those bad experiences really put me on the journey of, hey, I want to create a place to work where people like to come to work on Monday. And that really became a life passion for mine because those first few years of work for me were so terrible that uh, I really wanted to create an environment because I feel like work should be something that brings you energy versus sucks all your energy out. And so how can I get a lady that's going to sit at a sewing machine for nine hours and make seatbelts actually want to come to work on Monday? And that became kind of my life passion of how do we create that? How do we make a family at the uh, manufacturing facility or the retail store or the recruiting company? And so all those things kind of led through that. So operating without a net, I think, you know, it gave me confidence in my own decision-making once I just took in other forms of input and realized, yeah, I just still don't agree with all of those. I'm going to forge my own path. And, uh, you know, here I am 30 years later, uh, you know, I've owned five or six businesses along the way and uh, get to work in business culture and helping other places build an environment where people like to come to work and actually are energized by their work instead of, you know, beat up all day. Okay. So how do you get someone who's sitting at a sewing machine for nine hours a day making seatbelts <laughs> love their work? What, what did you notice needed to happen? Yeah, they just need a place to feel like they're needed and engaged. You know, we hear those terms mentioned all the time, but you know, listening to them. How can we make your job better? Oh, you need different lighting. Great. Let's get you some different lighting in here. And Oh, this would help. And then, you know, everybody's life has its struggles. And, you know, I, as the business owner had different resources available to me than a lot of my employees did. And so to be able to use those resources to help them in their personal life and, you know, Hey, you've got a kid that's got cancer and you need to be off work right now. Okay let's make that happen. You know, let's make sure that you are where you need to be, which is with your kid and not worried about whether or not your job's going to be available here when you, you know, get out of the hospital with your kid and just helping people and talking to them and listening to them. And, you know, 
in the early days when we were small enough, I did a lot of that myself. And then as we grew, you have to teach your managers how to do that and how to be listening for it. And so I love nothing better than when my managers would come to me and say, Hey, you know, Sanja, you know, we found out her heater has been out for, you know, three weeks and water's freezing on the coffee table in her living room because the environment she lives in is so tough okay, what can we do? I mean, we were able to find a new house for her. I knew a guy that was trying to buy up homes in the neighborhood where she uh, lived. So I was able to actually get her house sold for her and get her moved into a different house. And so, I mean, when you dive into the lives of people that you're working with like that, uh, they're excited to come to work because they feel like they're part of something much bigger than making a seatbelt uh, or whatever the product is. They're part of a team because, what that happens then is they're, they're listening for that in their teammates now. And when an issue pops up, they know they can come to me or one of the managers on the team, and we're going to take care of that issue for the other person too. And now they went from being the person that was helped to being the person that's listening for the person that needs help. And who doesn't like that? I mean, we all like to be on that side of the equation more, uh, but it's because they, you know, felt that love and that connection first, and then they were able to pass that along. And so we were able to really do a lot of different things over 20 years in people's lives uh, that had nothing to do with making a seatbelt, but it made everybody part of the same family, which is what we're all really looking for is that community. I mean, it's so important. That's, that's really beautiful because you're right. We spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy in the workplace. Right. Many of us for, for many years devote a big part of ourselves to that environment. So it sounds like give me, giving people the opportunity to be taken care of, to feel taken care of in that environment, it's huge. But you've, you've bucked conventional wisdom quite a bit. <laughs> it sounds like a little bit of a rebel. I can hear yeah. that, a little bit of a rebel. <laughs> so when it comes to setting up this type of cultural, this culture, this shift, in an environment, in an organization, like what kind of rebel do you have to be? What, what did you notice you had to fight against or you had to push back against or influence? Yeah, you know, really you're pushing back against the conventional wisdom. You're pushing, you know, when, when I got into the workforce 30 years ago, kind of the predominant idea was as a leader, you should never be friends with the people that you work with. You know, you separate work from family. All that's just weird. You know, I mean, I spend more time with the people here in my office now than I do with my own family. And so how can we not be friends? You know, again, sometimes I have to make hard decisions and I've got to understand my role in the company and they have to understand my role in the company but we're still friends and we're still here to take care of each other. And so kind of bucking those um, immediate thoughts early in the workforce, uh, it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, if I've got problems, you know, at home, I'm going to come to work and it's going to be hard to focus, you know? So I worry about the person that tells me they can just draw that line and come home, come to work and I leave everything at, you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's a little scary that you can just unplug. And the same way, if, if crazy stuff's going on at work, I come home and Heidi's going to hear about that. And it's going to stress me out at home. I can't just turn work off and, oh, okay, now let's focus on the family. And so as you build a team and understand that, hey, this is all about, uh, you know, integrating our work and our family together, uh, people respond to that really well, but that was very contrary to the, the beliefs that were out there. And still you find those beliefs a lot, but you know, I just did a survey with my team here about, you know, what is it that you need from us or what is it you like about our culture? And the number one thing that popped up on there was flexibility. You know, they like to be able to, if they need to take off in the middle of the day to go see a kid's school program, fantastic take off and go see your kids school program you know but we still got to get the work done so I, I need you to come back and if you got to work till seven tonight you know is they feel like that's a good trade-off and so they would like to have that flexibility and you can't do that in every job when we had a manufacturing plant it was a lot harder to let somebody off at 10 o'clock in the morning to go see a kids program but honestly if you work it out right you can still work that you know because you know, they call in sick, you figure it out. So 
you know, you're going to figure it out too, if they need to go watch their kid in a program. And so just trying to give them flexibility and those kind of things and realizing that, Hey, if things are tough at work, if your wife is sick or you've got a sick kid, you're going to bring that to work. And so I need to lower somewhat of my expectation of the performance you can bring at work. And that's okay. Because at some point in time, all that's going to get cleared up and I'm going to need to ask you to work a little bit extra at the office and that's okay too. So, you know, I've never been a big fan of the work-life balance. Uh, and you obviously have to have some of that, but it's not on a short-term basis. I kind of look at a year and say, okay, you know, during this two-month period, family one, and during this two-month period, business one, that's okay. They both got what they needed when they needed it. And so you'd have to have that kind of ability to juggle those things versus just every day has got to be eight hours at work and then I go home and completely unplug. I mean, that's not realistic. It is not. So now, Frank, you work with other business owners in doing this, right? This is you, when you went to, to the coaching institute, part of it was to engage even more in these types of conversations. Yeah. So what are you hearing? that people are struggling with in shifting to a culture that really supports uh, a, a harmonious, <laughs> right? Harmony between life outside of work and inside of the workplace. Yeah, so I, I think the thing people struggle with the most is actually building relationships uh, and spending the time that it takes to do that. I mean, it, it's a huge investment of time with your team in order to try to build those relationships and understand them and know when they're having a good day and when they're not having a good day and being able to pick up on those things. And, and that's important to build that kind of culture. And that's probably the number one thing that I get pushback from in my executive coaching when I'm trying to lead somebody to, you know, they say they want this, but they're not willing to do the work that it takes to get there. Uh, Cause they think for some reason, and I use the example a lot, Outside of work, uh, we get the fact that we have to invest in relationships. You know, if you're trying to date or anything like that, you spend a lot of time, you know, going out and going to the movies and all that. And then at work, we think just because you sit four feet from my desk that suddenly there's this great relationship. And it's like, no, we, we've got to get in there. We've got to know each other. And that just takes a lot of time and effort, just like it does at home and outside of work but people don't want to spend that time and effort at work because they don't feel like it's productive. And uh, I would argue that all day long that, yeah, that's the most productive thing you can be doing because that's important. And that's part of how you get fulfillment from work is because you've got this community and you've got people, you know, you can help when they need it and you know, they're going to help you when you need it. And we're a true team. Uh, and that doesn't happen just by sticking everybody in a room and saying, go, it takes months and years to really develop and most leaders aren't willing to spend that time uh, in order to really build that. So what do you say to them? If, they're, if you're finding that there's a lot of resistance in taking that on and feeling that relationship building is a, a, a part of productivity, like what, what's the first thing that you would recommend they do or look at or read or like, how do you shift that? You know, your, your actions always kind of show your beliefs. And so there's some sort of a belief there that you've got to try to challenge or, or get them to see that they need to change. And that's hard. You know, we're all a little bit stubborn when it comes to changing those mindsets that we have. And so, you know, a lot of times it just takes time from my standpoint as their coach uh, to build that relationship with them. So again, I can't step in on meeting number two and start really addressing some of this stuff because we don't have enough of a relationship built yet either. And so that's why coaching a lot of times takes quite a bit of time to really get into this. I think you can, you can do some stuff early on that's really helpful, but some of the big changes in beliefs and some of that takes time because you've got to trust me enough to let me challenge you, uh, in your way of thinking. And a lot of times it, during that time, I can look and see examples of, oh, okay, so tell me how your plan is working. You know, uh, are you getting any closer to the culture that you told me you wanted to create? And, you know, if they are honest and say no, then I'm like, well, why is that? You know? <laughs> and so you can kind of show <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you can show them over time that, Hey, this is what, you know, this is what I've been talking about. 
but now you're starting to see it a little bit. And so it just takes, you know, I've got a client now that I've been working with for, you know, probably a year and a half. And we've made some great progress on a number of things in that year and a half. But this is the issue that I've really been trying to get to for a year and a half. And we're just now to that point where they're starting to believe and understand that their plan's not working. And sometimes they think they're doing what I'm telling them to do, but they're still not because it's, you know, it's uncomfortable just to make little changes and I'm asking them to make a big change. And so uh, it's just a, a process and it's like most things, you just have to be patient and uh, walk alongside people because I may do it quicker than you or you may do it quicker than me. It's not right or wrong. It's just, hey, we're still trying to get where we're going. So mm -hmm. let's just be on this journey together and that's what i really enjoy doing is coming alongside and being patient and showing that and modeling that because that's what they need to do then with their team as well mm. who would have thought a race car driver would be patient and walk alongside somebody? <laughs> well you know the crazy thing is uh you know when, when you go to racing school one of the big things they tell you is you have to be slow to go fast and so you know when you're driving a race car very small movements of the steering wheel uh, actually are very helpful. And if you do anything, you know, if you see a race car driver doing this, uh, things aren't going very well. And I can promise you that's not a fast lap. So the, uh, the fastest lap you're laying down are just really small movements. And so it, it really is a game of patience uh, in the race car. Uh, you know, if you get too antsy and turn into a corner, literally a second too fast, you're not going to come out of that corner at the fastest speed possible. And so, you know, uh, Emerson Fittipaldi was interviewed after the Indy 500 one year, and they asked him about a crash in the turn four wall. And he said, I missed my turn in point by six inches. I mean, he's doing 227 miles an hour and he missed his turn in point by six inches. And he said, I knew I was gonna hit the wall as soon as I missed that turn in point. And so again, it is, it's that patient and it's those slight moves in a race car that actually make you much faster uh, than crazy, you know, just jerking the wheel around because that actually slows you down. Oh, this is good. Okay, so we're in the middle of a pandemic, Frank. There's a lot of jerking around right now. <laughs> There's a lot of sharp movements happening and some of them outside of our control. So what do you do with somebody that's trying to figure out how to get their, you know, how to be grounded and, and effective and productive when the economy is so volatile, right? The, the health concerns that they may have out in the community or even in their own family. Like what, what do you tell those leaders? Yeah, well, I mean, this is panic, you know. <laughs> That's no good for anybody. Yeah. And so in, in a situation like a pandemic or any sort of crisis situation, you're always looking for that calm leader. You know, even if you don't know exactly what the right move to do is, I can promise you the first good move is to just be calm and to gather the troops, find a direction and move in that direction. And just having that focus kind of helps calm everybody else around you down and keeps them moving forward. So, you know, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a race car, any of that, it's the same philosophy of know where you're going, small movements, don't get crazy behind the wheel. And, uh, you know, people follow that calm leader. Once you lose control, uh, people have a hard time following a leader that's lost control. So you don't have to have all the answers. A lot of times we think we have to have all the answers. People just want somebody that can be calm and navigate through that and give us some direction. Uh, and so that's really the, in my mind, the more important piece of leading through crisis of any type is just staying calm, giving direction, and helping the team understand, hey, one step at a time, let's take this easy, you know, and we'll adjust because again, with the pandemic, you know, this is what's going one way, then all of a sudden it's another way. Okay, let's make these slight little adjustments and uh, stay true to the course of what we're trying to, to accomplish. In your own life, in your own work now, like in your company, what, how are you dealing with that? How does that look? And with the with the what's the master class frank <laughs> that you're experiencing in your own work right now 
Yeah, I mean, really right now, obviously, recruiting business, you know, we went about six weeks with zero revenue uh, when the quarantine started. And so, unfortunately, we had to let go of some staff uh, for the business to even have a chance to survive. Uh, and then we really, we sat down with the whole team that was left and said, look, here's the situation. We have enough cash to get us through until this date, unless we bring in enough business, uh, you know, this is going to be a really tough situation for us to, to navigate through. You need to know what you're signing up for if you're staying on board with us. And to a man, the team was like, hey, let's go. Let's get it. Uh, and they've executed amazingly. Uh, but it was just that, okay, here's where we are. Here's what we've got to do to stay in business and focus the team, get them moving forward. And uh, we crushed our June goals uh, and have given us enough cash flow to to make it through this far and now we're already looking farther ahead you know business is steady right now but we know in the recruiting business it gets really quiet uh, around christmas time and in january and so we're already setting the goals now that say okay we need this much cash on hand as we go into our slow period of time and so focus the team here's what we're trying to accomplish everybody knows their role in that and uh, everybody's excited to be able to jump in. I mean, people love to help the company win. And the more transparent you can be with, here's where we are, here's where we need to go, here's your role in that, pe people sign up for that all day long. That's fascinating because I think, well, so you mentioned being calm as a leader, right? Really being clear and devoted to a vision and then communicating openly and intentionally with your team. What what are you doing to stay to stay so calm? Like what what's the yeah, what's the secret there? You know, uh, probably venting to my wife a lot. <laughs> you know, she's a great sounding board and she's a great support. I mean, I always tell people, you know, you, you can't be a business owner for twenty eight years uh, without a wife that's extremely supportive uh, or somebody in your corner that's actually you know there trying to help out because it, it's a roller coaster. And so to have those places to kind of check in and say, hey, you know, here's what I'm thinking, uh, you know, and just that support that says, you know, behind you, hey, if this doesn't work out, we're going to be okay. And to know that, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're relying on during those times. And then I think too, some of it's just my personal makeup. I mean, there's a lot of people that can't hop in a race car and drive a car at the limits uh, knowing that, hey, if I lose control in turn six at Laguna Seca, I'm going to end up in that concrete wall and that's going to hurt uh, a lot. Uh, a lot of people, they just, that's not what they're interested in. So I kind of have this high risk tolerance and uh, ability to stay kind of calm during some of those, you know, other people have a much higher risk tolerance than I do and can stay, you know, so it's not, but for, I think business, I think what I do works pretty well, you know. There's people out there doing way more difficult stuff in war and different things like that. Uh, that's probably way harder than what I endure on a daily basis, but it's just kind of part of what makes me up and I've got this ability to stay calm. And honestly, I think I've always thought part of it probably comes back to the relationship with my dad. He was very volatile. You never knew what he was going to do. So I kind of learned how to navigate through, uh, you know, somebody that was very emotional. And as a kid, that's tough to see your dad that way. But kind of the uh, mechanism I learned was to kind of how to stay calm through that. And so I think it serves me later on in life, uh, even though it wasn't a fun thing to try to learn. But. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah, my dad was a very strong voice. Let's just call it that. <laughs> in our family. But I think all of us, to some extent, developed yeah that ability to just kind of be calm under pressure because he would he would let you know when he was at his max. Right, his voice yeah. would raise. There was yeah, there was uh, it was tough. But I I think as a result for me, I you know not that I'm unflappable. There are still things that get under my skin, but I find myself don't raise my voice very much i can get over anger very quickly just yeah calm and and fairly steady when it comes to just okay let's work through this right give me a moment yeah. and then push forward so hey you know who knew thanks mr smith yeah exactly <laughs> well the other thing that i would throw out there too is it, it does take a lot of discipline i think uh you know unfortunately i got my dad's short temper 
And most people that know me would never guess that, but it's taken, you know, at this point, 54 years of trying to control that and rein it in. And I've not done a perfect job of that. Uh, but there is a level of discipline, the two that says, here's what I want to be. And I'm constantly working towards that. And so again, it's that, you know, set those goals and work towards them. And, uh, a lot of times we set goals maybe financially or, you know, and I'm a big fan of that, uh, but also goals about who you want to be mm. and have that picture of, you know, what, do, how do I want to be viewed by other people and, you know, push yourself to try to become that person. So uh, I think it takes a lot of discipline to do that as well. And, and as we're wrapping up here, Frank, so who do you want to be? What's, what's the goal for Frank 2020 or 2021? Yeah. So, you know, really my passion in life is business culture, as you've heard me talk through. And so, you know, as I look at my career uh, for the next 20 years, I want to be helping people create unique business culture in places where people inside the organization feel valued and part of the team and fulfilled by the work that they get to do. And so that translates not only in work, but same thing with my kids, you know, trying to help them navigate that and make sure that they're in a job that's fulfilling to them because I believe we were created to work and uh, if you're not doing work that's fulfilling to you you're not doing the right work and so that that kind of in a nutshell whether it's a friend or a family or people in my own office or clients that's really the focus of who I'm trying to be is how do I get you to plug into the work that you're really designed and meant to do uh, because you're going to enjoy work in a way you've never enjoyed it uh, when you get to do those things. So hundred percent. Oh yes. I'm in team Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm on. laughs> hey. So Frank, how do people get a hold of you knowing that a perhaps their relationships in the workplace need to transform or they're noticing that, they don't have that calm, clear communication with their teams. What, what do they need to do in order to contact you to support them? Okay. Yeah. So uh, mosaicpersonnel.com is the website for our recruiting company. And we're uh, getting ready to, because we've transitioned through this pandemic and adding these services uh, that we're doing, uh, you know, related to employee retention and how to build that culture in your business. Uh, so they can check out our website. They can email me at fsmith at mosaicpersonnel.com. Uh, and then my newest venture is uh, a, a video series that I've launched on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media stuff called Driving Happiness at Work. And uh, they're basically minute and a half videos uh, that give you one tip about how to improve the culture in your business and what is a leader you need to be doing to help people be happy at work, both the owners and uh, the employees. We're not just focused on the employees. We also want the owners to be happy because they've invested a lot in these businesses. And so uh, they can reach out on that website and get a hold of me. And I'd love to talk with them about how that I could help them build the culture that they want in their business. Phenomenal. And I'll make sure to put down the website as well as a link to your your drive, your minute, but driving happiness at work series. So that yep. way, yeah. So that way people can see it, watch it, and they also interact with you. Man, Frank, thank you so much. This was fantastic. How are you feeling? Yeah, it's been fun. So I appreciate you having me on. I love the work that you're doing. You know, you always, your smile and uh, just the way you brighten up the room, this topic for your podcast is just that it's you. And I think that's just pretty fun uh, to see you doing that and see how you light up while you're getting to do this too. So thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate that. And I know I, I tend to pry a little bit and some of the stuff we didn't talk about, we were going to talk about and I yeah. that specifically. So I, I value your, your authenticity. I value how genuine you are and really wanting to support and help others. I've benefited from that. From, from your generosity many times, you're the guy I'm like, okay, business question. <laughs> Anything yeah. from spreadsheets to ideas to, you know, conversations that I need to have. So I, yeah. I so and, and value. I love that. I mean, that, that's <laughs> what I'm kind of geared to do. And so that it doesn't feel like work when you put it, you know, the way most people think of work. Uh, I just, I love it. And it's a compliment to me when people like you reach out. So uh, always happy to talk with people and any way I can help. I'm happy to. Perfect. Well, I think there you have it, folks. <laughs> you have somebody in your corner that won't drive you crazy. <laughs> They'll drive you to happiness. Ooh, nice go. tagline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Uh, Can I use that? Sorry? Can I use that? Absolutely. I is my gift to you. Oh, thank, <laughs> uh, thank you, Frank, so much for being here on Time to Come Alive today. Those of you who tuned in, I hope you got a nugget for yourself out of this conversation. Again, just to remind you, if you want this episode and many more, make sure that you subscribe on www.timetocomealive.com so you get it straight in your email inbox or just, just like us on Facebook and subscribe there and you'll get a notification anytime a new video is posted. So thank you all for joining us today. Frank, once again, thank you. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of the day.